From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Donald Trump fans speculation about who might be his pick for vice president as President Biden forgives more student loans with a nice notice to borrowers via email. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, editorial board member Mane Ukwe-Barua and columnist Alicia Finley. With Donald Trump on track to win South Carolina's primary this week by perhaps a 60-40 margin, at least according to the polls we have right now, the chatter is rising again about whom he might name as his running mate and the possible next vice president of the United States. Let's start with a clip of Donald Trump on Fox News at a town hall on Tuesday night. The audience has uh, been asked who they think would be a good choice, and various names came up. Um, uh, one of them was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy. Yeah. He's made a big splash. Ron DeSantis, who's made in, making an appearance today in South Carolina, we just found out. Um, obviously, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, and a, a big uh, presence here for Tulsi Gabbard. Um, very interesting. <laughs> Um, are, and Christy Nome as well, I should say. Right. Are, are, are they all on your short list? Always the first quality has to be somebody that you think will be a good president, because if something should happen, you have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. A lot of people are talking about that gentleman right over there. And he's been, he's been so great. He's been such a great advocate. I, I have to say, I don't, this is in a very positive way. Tim Scott, he has been much better for me than he was for himself. I watched his campaign and he doesn't like talking about himself, but boy, does he talk about Trump. And I said, you know, I called him. I said, Tim, you're better for me than you were for yourself. But he's fantastic and he's a fantastic person. Manet, what do you make of this list and what qualities Donald Trump might need in a vice presidential running mate or what he might be looking for? Well, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out from the beginning how it reflects on the state of Trump's candidacy that he's able to, in an easygoing way, muse publicly about who his VP pick might be. The South Carolina primary is still coming up, and we saw Nikki Haley come out recently and say that she's vowing to fight on, despite the fact that it looks like she's going to underperform pretty significantly. Donald Trump holds a significant lead in her home state. Trump is feeling very, very confident that he's going to have the nomination sewn up sooner or later. And so it makes sense that Laura Ingram would be asking him very casually who he's thinking of for his VP pick, looking to the near future, anticipating that he probably is going to have the nomination. Obviously, voters will ultimately decide that question, but it makes sense that that's where Trump's mind is going and not so much focused on what he's going to have to do to keep Haley at bay. But I do think that the list that Laura Ingram presented him in that clip is a reasonable one. There definitely were some names there who anyone would expect would be in a consideration for Trump and for his advisors. It seems like Tim Scott could be the best and most plausible choice among those because he combines some of the attributes that Trump really could benefit from. So voters who are already in Trump's corner are those who are very much aligned with his populist approach, who are very, very concerned with the state of progressivism and the direction that President Biden is pushing the country. But the ones that Trump really needs to focus on picking up and reassuring are obviously some of these more moderate Republicans and independent suburbanites who are going to be looking for a little bit of reassurance in his VP pick. 
and Tim Scott being experienced senator who's well-liked on Capitol Hill, but who also passes the test for being conservative enough to plausibly be on the Republican Party ticket, seems to bridge both of those two things very well. And I think Tim Scott clearly seems to want it. His speed in endorsing Trump after he decided his own candidacy wasn't viable uh, shows that he's interested in gaining Trump's favor and potentially being tapped for that. My two cents, I guess, is that choosing a running mate, you have to have a few boxes checked. One, of course, as Manet mentions, Tim Scott is a guy who seems to want it. And to my eye, Ron DeSantis who was mentioned on that list in that clip we played, is a guy who does not seem to want it, especially after this hard-fought primary fight with President Trump. It seems to me that Ron DeSantis would rather be the successful governor of Florida a few more years, maybe before he tries again in 2028, than to be President Trump's running mate. So being willing to accept the job and excited for it and ready to go to bat for your candidate is a big piece of it. Another piece of it is trying to reassure a political constituency. And remember, that is what President Trump did originally in 2016. He was this New York real estate guy without much of a a political history. And so he chose Mike Pence, it seems, to reassure conservative voters that he would pick judges that would be reliable and not put his sister on the Supreme Court and so forth. And that may have been helpful in ultimately winning the 2016 election. And so, Alicia, what's interesting here is that he seems to have less of a problem of reassuring conservatives that he would be a conservative president given his four years in office. And he seems more to be interested in potentially doing some outreach to voters who have been skeptical of him. And so maybe Christy Nome, the South Carolina governor, makes some sense given that the Trump GOP has lost many women voters and especially suburban moms and so forth. That would be a way to get somebody on side who can go to those suburbs and make the argument for why President Trump for four more years is the right answer. Right. So I agree with that. South Dakota Governor Christy Nome could help bring over the female vote, which Trump has. Uh, if you look at the polls, he trails Biden by about 10 points even more among single women. Now, I'm not sure he's going to ever be able to bring over the single women, but definitely the suburban women who are swing voters in this election. And if they're not going to vote for Biden, they may just stay home. Now, I still think I agree 100% with what Monet said. I think that Tim Scott would probably still be the strongest choice because he's very even keeled. His temperament balances out Trump's temperament. He's known as just a nice guy. I mean, he could also, and we were talking about Christy Nome bringing over the female vote. Well, it's also possible that Tim Scott could help bring over some black voters. If you read the polls, have been starting to lean more conservative and had been a little disenchanted with the Biden presidency for numerous reasons, including the economy and inflation. So that could help maybe actually bring over some Democratic voters. Some of the other picks on his shortlist, like Tulsi Gabbard, Vivek Ramaswamy, I don't really see what they bring Trump. Again, as Manet was saying, and you were saying that they're very populist, rabble rousers, they can throw red meat to the audience and they're okay surrogates. But I don't think that they're really going to help reassure the not Trump base, the 20 percent or so who are now supporting Nikki Haley. And those are the people you really need to win over and get turned out because many of them, maybe they won't vote for Biden, assuming Biden is the Democratic nominee in November, but many of them just won't go out and vote. And then that would really hurt Trump in November. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. 
This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. Let's bring up some names also that were not on that short list that President Trump was asked. Carrie Lake, Arizona gubernatorial candidate, has been floated in the press and in the media. I think she has a similar problem, for example, Vivek Ramaswamy, which is that she comes with enough negatives that I don't see what she really adds to the ticket. I don't know why you would prefer Carrie Lake to someone like Christy Nome, who is less polarizing. Elise Stefanik, the New York congresswoman, has also been floated in the press. No mention of Nikki Haley. That seems to have been pretty well put to bed, the rumor that Haley is continuing to run because she was going for the VP slot. And then, Manet, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., that's an interesting idea. He is now running an independent candidacy. And so there have been some suggestions in the polls that he is taking more support from President Trump than he is from President Biden. So teaming up there would be a way to neutralize that threat in the general election. And apparently some talk about that. There's a New York Post story here from a few weeks ago. Independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says Donald Trump's team has indeed reached out to him about the possibility of joining the Republican frontrunner's ticket. He says that he would not take that job. But, Manet, there's a lot of people who say they don't want to take that job right before they take that job. Absolutely. And I think that from Kennedy's perspective, he probably is looking at the polls, seeing that there's a lot of interest in his candidacy because there are so many voters who are uh, disaffected both with Trump and Biden, but knows that it's very unlikely that he's going to cross over a certain threshold, even with a lot more campaigning. And so I wouldn't expect him to be asked to do the job, nor would I expect him to accept, but it would make a certain amount of sense. And I could imagine some synergy between the Kennedy message, which is very anti-establishmentarianism, playing on populist fears about the public health establishment, many of which are very valid, and Trump's presidency, uh, which was founded on a lot of the same energy. It wouldn't be the most outlandish scenario, but I think it's a very unlikely one nonetheless. It's interesting to think back only a month or so ago, it was conventional wisdom that Nikki Haley actually was a potential pick for the VP slot. Trump hadn't criticized her nearly as much as he had criticized Ron DeSantis, despite the fact that the two of them were really vying to be the alternative to Trump for the Republican nomination. And Haley hadn't really criticized Trump very openly either. She would speak somewhat fondly about her time as UN ambassador in his administration, say that he was not the likeliest candidate to be able to win, but wouldn't really condemn him in very strong terms. But that has changed since Iowa and New Hampshire. She's been much more open in her criticism, and Trump has absolutely returned that. And so it seems like that bridge has burned, and the possibility of her being tapped for the VP slot is gone, despite the fact that, as Alicia was suggesting, she does have the following of a lot of the voters who Trump is going to need in the general election to be able to beat President Biden. So it does seem as if the possibilities are narrowing a little bit as we get closer to the full primary season and Trump potentially locking up that nomination. He probably is going to want to pick someone who, again, will reassure conservative voters that he's not changing direction and that he's still the same Trump that a lot of Republicans really liked during his first term. 
but also someone who might be viable to more moderate voters and show them that there's going to be a bigger tent than just the most populous elements of the Republican Party back in the White House if he's elected. But if passes prologue, it could be a dramatic choosing of a candidate. It could take a while. There could be multiple reports coming out and it could happen late in the process. And I would point again to what happened in 2016. And this is a passage from Chris Christie's recent memoir. He was in the running, one of the finalists, apparently hard as it is to believe now, to be the 2016 vice president until he was beaten out by Mike Pence. And here's what he writes. He says, early in the evening, I got word from my New Jersey state troopers that Mike Pence was flying into Teterboro, the airport in Bergen County that handles many of the region's private jets. Donald had offered it to Mr. Pence and he didn't even call me. So I called Donald. Hey, I said, the least you could do when you make a final decision is to let me know. I haven't made any decision, he said. You haven't made any final decision. You haven't offered the vice presidency to anybody. Absolutely not. Well, then explain to me why Mike Pence is landing at Teterboro in half an hour. And this was apparently a couple days before the Pence announcement actually came. The way that he writes about this process of staffing the administration sounds equally chaotic. And knowing Donald Trump, he will try to to milk every headline he can possibly do out of this vice presidential choice. Let's turn to the president, Joe Biden, because Alicia, knowing his age and voter concerns about his age, there's going to be more focus on Joe Biden's vice president than there has been in a long time. And of course, right now, that is Kamala Harris, but it doesn't have to stay Kamala Harris. The president can make a change in, in his running mate if he chooses to do so. But Alicia, is there any upside for him to do that? Or would changing out Kamala Harris for somebody else, one of these people who are floated as presidential contenders, maybe Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, would that just be more problematic at this point for him politically than it's worth? I think you're right. I think that's why they haven't done it. And they're sticking by Harris is because because they don't want to be throwing the nation's first black vice president under the bus. And that's how it would be perceived to a lot of Democratic voters. Democratic voters actually don't care for Harris and they don't think she's probably the most competent person who could be filling that seat or that role. And many Democrats would probably prefer someone like Gavin Newsom. Interestingly, if you look at the polls in California, Biden is more popular than Newsom. And actually, Biden does better against Trump than Newsom does. And actually, if you look at another Emerson poll, Biden does better than Newsom against Trump in in many swing states. There are a lot of liabilities and risks to jettisoning Kamala Harris at this point. They're kind of stuck with her. And it's not clear to me whether someone else, maybe Gretchen Whitmer, would be more popular. And she's a little bit of an anodyne candidate. Nobody really knows much about her, but she's from a Michigan Midwest state. Perhaps she could help Biden win Michigan. But a lot of the other candidates are people who have been floated as potential successors or nominees. If Biden were to bow out like Gavin Newsom, I don't think that they're necessarily the solution. I think the problem is actually Biden, not Harris. And I think what they really need to do is just open up the race. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. 
Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. It is remarkable, though, how age has come to be Joe Biden's primary political weakness. And I would point to a recent ABC News poll that says 86 percent of Americans think that Biden, who is 81, is too old to do the job for another term. Eighty six percent of Americans. It is hard to get that kind of approval for apple pie in national survey. And it includes also notably 59 percent of people who think that both Biden and Trump are too old. Trump, again, is 77 years old. But Manet, I would expect Donald Trump to run hard on this as we get toward November if he's the Republican nominee. He is going to say a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for President Harris. And we all know the popularity of the vice president, which is lower, remarkably, than President Biden's. And so it is a significant challenge, I think, for the president politically. And he doesn't seem to be rising to meet it. There's new video out again on Tuesday of the president climbing the stairs to Air Force One, doing a little bit of a stutter step, a little bit of a stumble. And these are the small things that I think are making Americans worried that even if they're not convinced he's not too old right now at age 81, do they want to sign up for this until he's 86 years old? Right. And I think it's interesting to look back to 2020 and think about how Biden's age was perceived then compared with now, because he did present himself as a transitional candidate, implied that he might serve for only a single term if he were elected. The candidacy was all about getting past Trump and obviously the chaos of the pandemic, which had characterized the last year of Trump's presidency. So I think a lot of Americans voted for Biden, who had previously been vice president and a long-serving U.S. senator, as a vote for a safe pair of hands to get out of the chaos of that current moment, not thinking that they were buying into eight years of a guy who clearly was aging very rapidly and was somewhat in decline already. Fast forward four years and Biden clearly has deteriorated quite a lot, even compared with how he was in 2020. The mental slip ups that we've seen just in the past few weeks have been on a much higher order than anything that we had seen at that time. Obviously, confusing the names of foreign leaders has become very famous now. And just the stiffness in his gait and some of these trips, I think that there probably are a few Americans who haven't seen and heard these clips by now and have a big sense that he's really in trouble. Uh, you know, not only is he not at the peak of his powers, but he, you know, turned for the worse really at any moment. So I think Trump is going to lean on that critique of Biden much harder in 2024 than he did in 2020. And it's already really breaking through. And Democrats know that they have a big problem on their hands, both between Biden and his unfitness and then the fact that it seems like Kamala Harris, who's deeply unpopular, is locked into that second slot. So it will be a major campaign theme. We're probably only seeing the beginning of that as a major story of the race. Alicia, in your column this week, you take up some of the medical studies on aging. And the headline, if listeners want to go find that and give it a read, is what we know about cognitive decline. And give us a sense of the argument that you're making there. Well, I was looking at not just studies, but new technologies and what they're discovering using artificial intelligence. And, you know, physical decline in many ways it manifests cognitive decline. So let's just take gait, the way you walk. People start to slow down, their gait starts to slow, and their pace starts to slow more than a decade before they actually start to manifest cognitive or symptoms of cognitive decline. 
Interestingly, if you do what doctors sometimes are starting to do is they'll stick patients on a treadmill and watch how they walk. And then they'll ask them to do some simple cognitive tasks, you know, count backwards from 50. And many people who are in the very early stages of decline, they can walk okay. But then they have to start doing mental processing tasks and then they start to stumble or their gait actually shifts and and shows some abnormality. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to try to diagnose Biden. Everyone knows what they see, that he walks with a little bit of a short shuffle. He has difficulty moving his legs. One reason people have these gait abnormalities is because of neurological dysfunctions. There's already some kind of a decline or degeneration in the brain and that affects the way they walk. And similarly with the way they speak, and there are a lot of it, and again, this is usually using machine learning that records voices and people who are experiencing cognitive decline or not even yet significant cognitive decline, but shows up in brain scans and they are able to use machine learning to pair the voices and then differences in pitch, intonation, the way they emphasize vowels, various minor differences with the way they perform on cognitive tests and their brain scans. And they're they're able to draw parallels and correlations. And again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to try to diagnose Biden. But the way he speaks, it's not just the substance and the fact that he has a habit of forgetting names for leaders or mistaking them for someone else. But it's just the way he speaks. It not only just doesn't connote vigor, but you can see that he's actually struggling in some ways. And I think that, again, with the caveat, I'm not going to try to diagnose him. This is just another manifestation of the early stages of some kind of mild cognitive impairment. So we're learning more and more about this because of these new technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence that wasn't even available a decade ago. To my knowledge, that Biden hasn't even done a cognitive test in these cognitive tests that most primary care doctors do. They're really a rudimentary. Most people pass and they're finding that they really miss most up to 90 percent mild cognitive impairment cases because people, one, they're rudimentary, and two, people manifest different symptoms of cognitive decline in the early stages. But to my knowledge, again, Biden hasn't even performed cognitive tests, so we really don't know. Voters only see what they see on TV, hear his press conferences. And so in a way, like voters can make a judgment on that. We don't need an official diagnosis from a doctor. And just one other point would be that when people start to stumble mentally, they start to also experience physical symptoms. You mentioned the stumble. That's not unexpected or unsurprising for someone who's actually in the early or stages of dementia or mild cognitive impairment. They start to actually fall more. Don't discount the possibility that Biden could experience bigger physical issues in the next several months. In the face of these voter concerns, though, the White House has been looking for an issue to motivate Democrats to the polls. It was Bidenomics. It was shrinkflation. It was junk fees. And Manet, on Wednesday, we have another example of this, another $1.2 billion in student loan debt relief for about 150,000 borrowers is announced. That brings the total of debt cancellation to $138 billion for about 3.9 million borrowers. And notable about what's happening on Wednesday, Manet, here is the top of the Washington Post story. President Biden will email 150,000 student loan borrowers 
to let them know their debts have been forgiven. And I'm sure that is just a matter of administrative process. I'm sure this has nothing to do with the politics of sending a personal email from the president who's up for re-election to 150,000 potential voters. Manet, you get the last word. The cynicism in that act is really shocking, as you imply. I do think that obviously every president wants to get credit for the policies that he pushes through, particularly those that make voters materially better off. And that's exactly what Biden is trying to do by waving away loan debt for a lot of Americans who are saddled with it. But the fact that he's sending this email to make sure that his name is personally attached to it and that he gets that positive mental association is just a little bit of a grimy step down, reminiscent of Trump signing his name on those stimulus checks during his own presidency. It's just really one of the lowest forms of politics. But more broadly, I do think that President Biden is trying to recreate in a piecemeal fashion what the Supreme Court wouldn't let him do in one big sweeping act, which is to cancel as much student loan debt as possible, despite the fact that obviously Congress is supposed to have responsibility for this as a general policy matter. The president shouldn't be able to tinker with the loan balance and shouldn't be able to increase the federal debt by forgiving some of these loans, but he's using whatever policy levers are available to him to do it by tweaking this and that program, despite the fact that he couldn't get away with it in a larger fashion. So we'll see if voters respond in the way that he hopes. I'm skeptical, but it's possible that he could get a little bit of support, especially from some young folks. Thank you, Manet and Alicia. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.